Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we are speaking with Gary Schneeberger. Leadership, Gary believes, is not dictatorship, but discipleship. Since his first management position as an assistant city editor at a newspaper in South Texas more than 25 years ago, he has cast a vision for what success looks like with the teams he has led while simultaneously teaching them the skills they need to achieve it. From his newspaper career, which included a stop at the Los Angeles Times, to his PR career, which included serving as Vice President of Communications for the International Christian Ministry, Focus on the Family, Schneeberger has endeavored to lead from within, not above, choosing not just to show rather than tell, but aiming to model alongside those he leads educating and empowering them to grow their own professional and leadership skills. As founder and president of Roar, a PR firm with offices in Los Angeles and the Chicago area, he is a leader in the public relations space, authoring the best-selling Bite the Dog, Build a PR Strategy to Make News That Matters a guidebook on best PR practices that equips authors, experts, speakers, entrepreneurs, and organizational leaders in the art of giving voice to what's in their hearts to change others' hearts. Welcome, Gary Schneeberger. How are you? I am doing great, Lily. Thank you for having me. Well, we're so excited to have you on our podcast. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? I am. Wonderful. Now, Gary, can you tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now? Sure. My first leadership job, and I didn't even think of it as a leadership job at the time. I just thought of it as like a promotion and management. I was in daily newspapers. I was a journalist and I got promoted from a reporter to be an assistant city editor, which is, you know, the guy who works late at night and edits all these stories that come in at night. And I'll never forget the name of the reporter if she's listening her name was Ann Rundle, the first person I ever sat down to edit her story in a professional context, not in college, but in a professional context. And that really jazzed me. The idea of being able to help people, in this particular case, write better, report better, understand things better. At that time, the guy who promoted me was a mentor to me, and he really poured his life and his experience into me. He had won a Pulitzer Prize editing a story while he was in Colorado Springs, Colorado at the paper. So he just took me under his wing, taught me journalism in a way that I hadn't learned because I went to school, no journalism program. I was an English major. He poured into me. I then wanted to pour into other people. So from that first newspaper gig to other newspaper gigs to then I crossed over to the dark side, quote unquote, (laughs) of public relations. And I hope my leadership philosophy journey Uh, The way that I do it is to mentor, is to coach and to teach and pass along what I've considered best practices 
to those I've led. So right now, I am in the dark side of communications. I'm in public relations. I have a firm called Roar. R-O-A-R, Roar. Correct. The uh, website is weroar.la, which should stand for Los Angeles in my head, but it actually is the country code for Lithuania, but it works for me because I do work for Hollywood still. So I formed Roar, and the idea behind that really was to help people articulate what's in their hearts to change other people's hearts. That's been the most rewarding aspect of what I've done in all of my communications, whether it was as a reporter helping tell people stories or as a journalist or as a PR guy helping people get their stories told. So that's where I'm kind of exercising the leadership muscles now. And the beautiful thing about that is that there's team leadership, but there's also moving to try to be the leader in the public relations space. I wrote a book last year about what I consider to be the best practice of the art of PR. It's been very rewarding to see how that has done, the comments I've received from people there. So it's another aspect of leadership, not necessarily of team leadership, but leadership in an industry that has been truly rewarding. So why Roar? That is a very interesting question. It's so funny that I just said that's an interesting question. I have a client who I always say, don't say that's an interesting question to every question, because if you say it's an interesting question, it just sounds like you're trying to, you know, stall. And I just said that. <laughs> Are so you stalling, funny. Gary? I'm not, but I want him to hear this because he's going to laugh when he hears this. But yes. That is an interesting question because no one's ever asked me that before. And the reason why is because I am a Christian. And while I was in Los Angeles working for a PR firm that dealt with the film industry, at my church, they had an artist who during the worship time during the service would draw uh, beautiful artwork. She would paint beautiful artwork. And one of the pieces that she painted, and it's right above my desk, I'm looking at it right now, is a picture of a multicolored lion, beautiful mane, in full roar. And something about that painting when I saw it just stirred me. And one of the company's mission, I wrote it on the stereotypical back of a napkin, back of an envelope, was to help people articulate what's in their hearts to change other people's hearts. And mm. the way that lion in this painting is communicating so passionately, that was it for me. That was where I had to land. And as I say, sometimes when you're saying what it is that's on your heart and you want to change other people's hearts, it's okay to blow the other guy's hair back a little bit. You know what? I would love for you to send me a picture of that. Absolutely. So that Absolutely. we can post it. So Because I know people are going to... Well, I'm very curious and yeah, I want I, to know. <laughs> I would love to. All right, great. The other thing you mentioned was team. So what does it mean to you to have a good team and how do you build one? You know, I'll steal from Jim Collins to say that you want to have the right people on the bus. And then more importantly, you want to have the right people in the right seats on the bus. I'd add to that, not that I'm someone who knows so much about leadership, I should be adding to Jim Collins, but I would add to that, that you want people who are on the bus because they want to go to the same destination everybody else on the bus wants to go to. Yes, you want to have diversity and personality and skill and style, extremely important. But amid all that diversity, amid different talent levels, different skill sets, different seats on the bus, you want to make sure that they're all wanting to head in the same direction, either rowing in the same direction, let's take it out of the bus to a boat, or pulling in the same direction, say it's a, the engine of a train. You want everybody to be kind of pointed in the same direction. When I've put together teams, inherited teams, tried to move teams around, build teams, it's been designed for people who will capture the vision and the mission, but have 
different skill sets, different skill levels. You don't want a bunch of experts. You want some people that need to learn. You want mm -hmm. people who can learn from you, can learn from their peers on the team. Uh, lots of different generations. That's the most enriching team because everybody has the ability to learn from everybody else. And to have a really good team, you need to build trust. Absolutely. If what are some ways that we can do that? You know, I spent 12 years at the Christian Ministry Focus on the Family, which is a large faith-based organization that helps parents raise their kids and helps couples improve their marriages. And one of the things I did while I was there, because Focus on the Family was started in the 70s, and its audience, the folks it reached, had gotten grayer over the years. So when I was there uh, about six, seven years ago, I created a position of millennial outreach director who worked for me. And the idea behind that was to help people take a second look at Focus on the Family who were in that younger cohort who hadn't looked at it. But what I tried to do with those younger employees, and to go back to your question to how do you make sure you have the right people on the team and how do you build trust in a team, is you've got to give even the least experienced members of your team, you've got to let them open a few doors in the house. You don't necessarily have to give them all the keys to unlock every door, but you've got to let them open some doors. You've got to let them try, maybe fall, get up, dust themselves off, and learn things that you were allowed to learn. The worst kind of boss, in my estimation, is one who, it's about dictatorship, not discipleship. You are telling people what to do rather than modeling what to do, but modeling's not even enough. You have to give them the opportunity to actually do it, and that still is somewhat too rare in the business space. Discipleship isn't a word that a lot of us in education know of. So the difference between dictatorship and discipleship is what? It's the boss who tells you what to do. It's the my way or the highway right. kind of boss. Right, That's which we're very familiar with. Correct. Discipleship, you could take it from my Christian background in the sense of Jesus and his disciples, those he taught through walking among them, walking alongside them, working with them. But it's allowing people to learn from you and allowing people to learn on their own with the cover that you provide to help them learn from those stumbles and fumbles that we're all gonna go through. Mm -hmm. So equipping others to do the work, wonderful. Now Gary, which quote or quotes speak to you and why? Very good question. Quotes that speak to me, I mean, there's a lot. Um, mm -hmm. This will require a bit of a preamble, but. Mm -hmm. I'll give you the quote and I'll do a post amble. Let's try that. Okay. The quote is, it's hard to have ideas and easy to give up. And if folks have not heard that quote, it's because it came from a very unsuccessful film. Disney did a movie seven years ago or so called Tomorrowland, and it was based in part on their ride. Mm -hmm. And that quote came from the heroine of the story, a teenage girl who had all these ideas about how to improve the world and was very creative but she kept sort of getting marginalized and people would kind of not pay attention to her. And the film, I loved it, still love it, give it away to people all the time. Some people give away books, I give away movies. I give away the movie Tomorrowland because the crux of that movie is how important creativity and creative people are mm. to society and to culture. So many of us have ideas, but it's hard to have ideas when the culture, when the boss, when the job wants to not allow you to express those ideas or act on those mm. ideas. So the quote, it's hard to have ideas and easy to give up. I would say I try to instill in those I've led to reverse that, to make it easy to have ideas and impossible 
to give up, to keep trying mm. to implement those ideas and change the world. And I imagine when you do that, you empower people. It's almost like setting them free. Yeah. I mean, that is the upshot of the film and the upshot mm -hmm. of a lot of what certainly happened to me. Mm -hmm. When I was mentored, I was set free. When I left that job I was talking about where I had first got promoted, and it still hangs in my office. It's a different painting of eagles. It's titled, Even Eagles Need a Push. And it's a mother eagle nudging out of the nest her eaglets. And my boss, my mentor, gave me that when I left his newspaper to become editor of my own newspaper. And the idea was he was empowering. He had empowered me to fly on my own. There's a beautiful verse there that I can't quite remember what it says because it's hanging in my office and I'm at my home office right now. But the idea behind it is you prepare people for something and mm. you equip them for something. Ideally, what you equip them for is figuratively to push them out of the nest to go out and make their own mark in the world. Fantastic. Now you need to send me a picture of that too. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you a whole portfolio yes. of all my weird artwork that I have lying around. Okay. So what's the best advice you've ever received? This one's easy. From my mom who passed away 25 years ago, but still with me in so many ways every day. And right now with me in this, my mom said to me when I was um, late teens, early twenties, she said, if one person thinks you're a and I'll say jerk, although she said a stronger word. Mm -hmm. If one person thinks you're a jerk, it's a difference of opinion. Mm. If two or three people think you're a jerk, you probably need to take a look at yourself because you might be a jerk and you might need to do something to change that. That has served me well through the years. If there's friction in certain areas of your life and it's one person, okay, difference of opinion, personality conflict, that's okay. But if three or four people are saying the same sorts of things, it takes courage to be corrected. It takes courage to face that, dig in, and do what my mom was exhorting me to do, which was examine what the conflict is and own what part of it you can own, because that will improve your leadership, improve your life, improve your relationships, improve mm. pretty much any aspect of your life where you find yourself with that conflict. It is essential for effective leadership. And not only essential, Lily, it's also, unfortunately, still kind of rare sometimes yes. for leaders to be able to receive that feedback. Right. But we're hoping to change that with conversations Amen. like this. Amen. <laughs> Amen. All right. So, Gary, tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it shaped your life. Another extraordinarily simple one, and that would be alcoholism. I mentioned I was a reporter and when you see sort of the stereotypical bad boy, bad girl reporter in a movie or something, that was me. I drank too much, uh, led me to do too many both stupid and hurtful things to people in relationships, at work, with colleagues. And really, if that had not ended, and my sobriety, 22 years sober as of April 28th of this year. Um, Congratulations, if that not, that's awesome. Thank you. If that had not happened, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation and mm. I don't believe I would have had what I hope is the impact I've been able to have on those I've been able to lead. The key for me was coming to a place like AA talks about, and AA was fantastic for me, to coming to the end of myself and realizing that there was something drastically wrong and I wasn't able to fix it. And mm. for me, AA talks about a higher power, a God of our own understanding. At the end of the day, that wasn't quite enough for me. AA was great. It got me on the road. That led to five or six months later, I then had an encounter with God. I accepted Jesus as my savior, and that has changed everything. 
not made everything perfect, made everything able to get through. Um, I always tell people when in the aftermath of a national crisis, there is a movement of people who say thoughts and prayers don't help. Uh, my response to that is prayer doesn't promise outcome. It promises get through. And that's what has certainly been true for me is uh, alcoholism no longer a part of my life, but problems still part of my life and I'm able to meet them in different ways now. So that has shaped my life in ways that I don't even know what has been accomplished. Gary, thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, I know alcoholism has been a part of my family mm. um, and it's touched my life and a lot of people around us. So I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. Now, can you tell us about one of your greatest successes? Your listeners may or may not remember nine years ago during the Super Bowl, because like every year during the Super Bowl, the big talk is the advertisement, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody wants to talk about the advertisement. Well, nine years ago, there was a then college football quarterback named Tim Tebow. And I was working at Focus on the Family. And we decided to do an advertisement that featured Tim Tebow and his mom. And the ad was a pro-life spot because Focus on the Family is a Christian organization. is a very pro-life organization. And what happened is, you know, it was a nice little sweet ad. But some people who disagreed with Focus on the Family on the issues of abortion and the sanctity of life started to get upset about the fact that CBS was selling us the ad. So they started complaining to the press and they started to say things like protest. And what ended up happening is that ad became, and I led the PR charge behind that ad, that ad became what is still the most talked about Super Bowl ad in a generation. It did. It cost $3 million for us to buy that ad. That ad created more than $35 million in earned media, in coverage, from every network you can think of all across the country. Al Jazeera wanted to cover it. It was such a big story because what people thought we were going to do is have some political screed on the Super Bowl, and they were all upset about that. They all criticized it without seeing it. So we just sat back, even though today advertisers like to release their ads early, we held ours until the game. Mm -hmm. cost us media appearances. Bill O'Reilly, number one cable news guy at the time, wanted to have us on, but only if we showed him the ad. Said, sorry, Bill. So that was successful, not only because it led to great exposure for Focus on the Family and our positions on issues that were core to what we stood for on the issue of life, but I want to read you that statistic. It's in my book. A research group called the Barna Group did a polling after the game with all the controversy about the ad, all the coverage of the ad, the Barner Group found that 6% of the people who saw the ad said it caused them to reconsider their position on abortion. Now, when you hear 6%, you think, eh, but that's not even a good tip, <laughs> right? 6% mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. nothing. But when you do the math, and I'm a word guy, so my math, I double-checked it many times. 45.7 million people saw the ad. 6% of 45.7 million is 2,742,000 people. Not bad. 2,742,000 people were led to reconsider their position on abortion. Doesn't mean that they changed it. Doesn't mean that they even considered it in a way that would align with what Focus on the Family believed in. But we started and continued a nationwide dialogue about an issue important to us through the advertising and through our public relations. That was an enormous 
victory for us. As I like to say, it was a good day at the PR factory. And it was a dialogue, which is hard to do when you're on polar opposite sides. Absolutely, because too much of the time, and that's what those who criticized us thought we were going to do a monologue. And we mm -hmm. didn't. We did a good-natured, fun ad, and we were more than happy to have dialogue and have conversation with those who disagreed with us, who, unfortunately for them, fortunately for us, were criticizing something they hadn't seen. And they kept calling it political, and they kept calling it divisive. And I'm holding the ad in my hand and on a DVD, and I'm going, that's not what this is. So that was a very strong time. And the other aspect of that that made it successful is uh, one woman wrote to us, She'd gone to a Super Bowl party. She had been pregnant with an unplanned pregnancy by a married man. She was thinking of terminating her pregnancy, went to the Super Bowl party, saw the ad, went to the website that the ad teased, and she kept that baby. I got to hold that child three or four months later. Her name's Avita Grace, who's mm -hmm. now nine years old. Again, our reason for making that ad is because we were a pro-life organization, and to see that ad saved that life was profoundly touching. Um, oh. And I'll never forget that aspect of that story. Far more impressive. That's another yeah. book. Yeah, that was pretty wow. special. Now, you did mention your book. Tell us about it and where can we get it? The uh, book is called Bite the Dog, Build a PR Strategy to Make News That Matters. The title, Bite the Dog, there's an old saying in journalism circles that I heard from the moment I started. What you're looking for as a journalist are not stories where dogs bite men because dogs have been biting men since the two species met each other. What you're looking for are those man-bite-dog stories. That's what you want, man-bites-dog stories. Those are the things that are unusual, that are out of the ordinary, that are going to attract people's attention. So I titled the book that to help people get in the mindset of to make news that matters, to create news, to get journalists to report on you, you want to surprise them. You mm -hmm. want to either exceed their expectations or upset their expectations. By doing mm -hmm. so, you mm -hmm. will be much more likely to get coverage. So the book really is sort of my manifesto, my treatise on what goes into good public relations, unpacks a little bit about what the media are like. I spent 15 years as a journalist, so I know them pretty well. And then the best practices to create buzz around your brand, to raise your profile, to raise your bottom line by leveraging the assets that you have in the marketplace of ideas through the press. The great thing about that is when you do it right, it's a mutually beneficial exchange. Right. In other words, you get coverage for your brand. If you're an author, expert, speaker, coach, consultant, business leader, entrepreneur, organizational head, you get coverage for your business and that's what you want. But the reporters get what they want too. They get something that will entice, attract, impress, entertain their audiences. If you go to a journalist and say, hey, my book's great, you should write about it. You know, you're not ordering a hamburger from them. <laughs> You've got to show them what it is that you have that their listeners, viewers, readers are going to want to know. That's what the book tries to unpack for folks. And, and that's what your organization does as well. Correct. You know, we're about finding those leverage points. First thing we do, I always tell clients when I bring them on board, do not expect to start to get placements right away because we've got to go to school on your organization or on your brand, on your business, on your offering, so that we know what levers to push and pull in the culture to get the media interested. The beautiful thing about public relations and about engaging 
public relations to win over press to write stories about what you do is that every day is a new opportunity to upset expectations or exceed expectations because every day there's something new in the culture there's a new news story out there mm -hmm. that you can plug into because it's what people are talking about. That to me is the most fascinating part of what I get to do. So the book available, amazon.com, barnesandnoble.com, all the fine booksellers out there and probably some that aren't even that fine. Uh, mm -hmm. You can find it there. You can also get one through my website. If anybody would care to get one that's signed, I can send one through the website. You can find out how to do that at the website. And the website is again? WeRoar.LA. Perfect. Hey, leaders, stay tuned for the rest of the interview following this brief message. If you haven't downloaded your copy of the Master Leadership Journal, go to masterleadership.org forward slash MLJ to get instant access and begin growing your leadership with questions that have been curated by top-level leaders. I've also included some cool extras for you at masterleadership.org forward slash MLJ. Now, Gary, many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you, and what are you learning now? I was reading an article in the Harvard Business Review on my flight back from a business trip to Denver a couple of weeks ago, and it said that one of the biggest Achilles heels for leaders, for bosses, is believing in their own hype, trusting their own experience more than anything. So, yeah. I may not have written the book on public relations, but I wrote a book on public relations. But just earlier this week, I signed up for a webinar in which the editor of Entrepreneur Magazine talked to entrepreneurs just starting out about what do the press want to see from you as an entrepreneur? How do you get a pitch? You know, the same thing my book's about, this editor was talking to entrepreneurs about how to do that. Mm -hmm. And did I learn for the entire hour? No, a lot of the stuff was rudimentary advice. But there were a few things in there that caused me to kind of reposition and think differently about some of the things I've assumed to be true. So what lifelong learning means to me is recognizing that I still have learning to do for the rest of my lifetime. It's knowing that I have experience, knowing that I have connections, I have a way of doing things, I have a track record of success, but especially in media, the landscape's always changing. There are always new opportunities opening up. So I'm going to school on who's podcasts are interesting, what new technology is going on in the way that we put information around. Because one of the things I say in the book is the most influential media sources these days aren't headquartered in New York. A lot of them are headquartered in someone's studio apartment. And that's the kind of thing that I have to constantly remind myself of. I'm old school analog in some ways when it comes to journalism. I was, you know, when I started out, you were still setting type by hand. Much different today. I've embraced that technology. You have to embrace those changes. If you just look in my lifetime, the things that have changed from rotary dial telephones to so you walk around with these things in your pockets, it's crazy. You have to stay on the cutting edge of those things because your clients want to be there and because the press is there and their audiences are there. So I'm always listening to podcasts. I'm always checking out new media because I want to understand the new ways of delivering news to audiences so that I can leverage that for my clients. I love that. And I think that's something as a leader that we always need to be is a learner. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why leader and learner have a lot of the same letters in them, right? They're, they're I never very, even thought of that. They're very, they're very, I didn't either till right now, Lily. You See brought that? something new out of me. Um, Mastermind was created. <laughs> I'm going to use that. Now, feel free. You can use that too. Okay, it was, thanks. It was created in the context of your intellectual property here. So go ahead and run with it. But 
no, there's a reason why, because you can't really lead. You can't really mentor unless you're mm-hmm. learning what's going on. You're learning new things. I think the worst, most frustrating kinds of bosses are the ones that always want to do it the way it's always been done. And you those know, professors I, who recycle the same program, the same curriculum over and over again. Right. And when that happens, I go back to the quote you asked me about. This is when that quote comes into play for so many people. It's hard to have ideas and easy to give up. If you have an idea of a new way to do something, if you have an idea of a new way to reach an audience, if you have an idea of a new way to lead and motivate people, and the boss is a dictator, you know, not a disciple maker, and the boss says no, then it is easy to give up and it Mm -hmm. is easy to stop having ideas. You're at the forefront of helping people realize that's not the way to go. So bravo. All right. Great. Now, Gary, what have you read, watched, or listened to that our listeners should as well, and why? No one else is going to give you this answer ever. Um, Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Because it doesn't at first blush appear to be, and it wasn't when I asked for it as a Christmas gift, it wasn't something I thought was going to help me understand both leadership and being a lifelong leader, new avenues in my line of work of public relations, is a biography called The Babe about Babe Ruth. And okay. in addition, to, I wanted it because I'm a baseball fan. So I asked my wife to get it for me for Christmas and she did. Okay. Here's why that book is so much more than just a biography of Babe Ruth. There's how many biographies of Babe Ruth are there? The author focuses on a particular slice of time in the late 20s when Ruth was at the peak of his popularity and how he used that popularity to leverage a bunch of public appearances he did a barnstorming tour across the U.S. where they were opening up businesses. He and Lou Gehrig, his teammate, also a famous baseball player, they were playing local kids in baseball games in the offseason. It was fascinating, but it's about Babe Ruth, secondarily about Lou Gehrig, but really the character who comes to life mostly in this book is a man named Christy Walsh, who in many ways pioneered the art of public relations. He was Ruth's agent for public appearances. And he recognized how to take what was in Babe Ruth's heart, take what was Babe Ruth's personality, and leverage that to the point that Babe Ruth made much more money doing those appearances than he made as a baseball player. And part of the reason why we still all remember Babe Ruth is because of the work of Christy Walsh to get him known beyond the field, outside the lines. And And that just really struck me Mm -hmm. that this book unpacked the first steps of the business I'm now in, the business I'm hoping to be a thought leader in, extremely fascinating. So mm. I can't recommend it enough. The book is actually called The Big Fella, and it's written by Jane Levy. One of the reasons that Babe Ruth connected so well with people and he's remembered so fondly is because he did connect with people. Mm-hmm. You felt you knew him. He was in color. He had a rags to riches story, being an orphan. Uh, the way that he grew up, uh, he was bigger than life. He ate 60 hot dogs or whatever all those stories were. The book unpacks a lot of that stuff was maybe enhanced by Christy Walsh, his agent, his PR guy. So that's one of the reasons. Yeah, Babe Ruth connected with people because in that day and age, he was in the middle of Ohio playing baseball with kids from schools there and signing hundreds of baseballs. Compare that to the culture today in pro sports and it's a completely different deal and just to bring that full circle i so wholeheartedly believe that effective leadership involves connecting with others when you talked about babe ruth in this book that piece just stood out for me and that's why he was so effective and that's where leadership can be effective too 
going back to my philosophy of leadership, it's not leading from above, mm-hmm. it's leading from within. It's leading out. It's being part of the group that's trying to do the things. It's not just telling people what to do. It's certainly not even just showing people what to do a lot of times. It's doing it alongside them so that you have a shared buy-in on something. Mm -hmm. Even the idea of show, don't tell falls short if you're showing in abstract, if you're not showing on the front lines. Extraordinarily small story, but when I was at Focus on the Family, one of the things I was in charge of was community relations. We had a visitor center there, and it had things that kids could play on. And once a year, we would clean that. I would be one of the people, I was a vice president of communications. I'm not saying the job was too small for me, but what I wanted to convey to people was, it's not too small for me to go and clean the big airplane kids crawled all over. I was crawling on the floor with the staff doing those kinds of things because I wanted not just to show them and not just to model for them. I wanted to do it with them because we had a lot of fun too doing those kind of things. And it built camaraderie Mm -hmm. and it built, going back to your point earlier, it built trust. You will trust someone who will walk not just a mile in your shoes, but will walk a mile in his or her own shoes alongside you. Those are the people you trust. And is not afraid to get their hands dirty and do the hard work. Absolutely. All right. So Gary, if there were something you could change in education, what would that be? All right, I'm going to say a fascinating question again, because I got married two years ago. My wife has two teenage children. My stepkids, 18-year-old stepdaughter, 17-year-old stepson. And I've watched them in high school now. And what wouldn't I change? Teaching to the test, I would change. Allowing do-overs when you didn't score well on the test the first time. Grace periods for assignments that weren't done on time. This is one that just came up. Being able to skip finals because of scores on college Mm. entrance exams that aren't even the top scores. I think education has switched from being about imparting knowledge to kids. And it's in many cases, and I'm not saying it doesn't exist, that there aren't still true great teachers out there. My degree is in education. I wanted to be a teacher. I didn't because I realized that I was kind of good at journalism and I didn't want to become a bad teacher who got burned out like so many ones I had when I was growing up. But I think institutionally now it's about state scores and state funding and those kind of things. And I think sadly kids are getting lost in the process. I watch the effect on my stepson who, yeah, okay, I didn't really study for that test and I kind of got a bad grade, but I can take it over. And you know, that's to me, I'm still like, oh my gosh, I never got an F on anything in school. And today you can get an F and you just be like, okay, well, if I got an F, I can retake it. Put the focus back on not just what's best for kids, meaning good grades or second chances, but what's best for kids in terms of what they learn, not just about subject matter, but about life. Because these kids are in for a rude awakening when they start working and they have a report due for the boss. Even if the boss is about discipleship, not dictatorship, and you turn in a bad report that shows half-hearted effort, you don't get a do-over on that. You may get a pink slip for that. That's the thing that I think schools need to do a better job of is educating kids to help them on the runway to real life as opposed to thinking it all ends once they walk out your doors Mm. as a school. So if there were one course, a high school called you up and said, Gary, can you teach a course to our high school students? What would you teach? I would teach a basic composition and writing course. No matter what you do for a living, even if it is 
a completely blue collar thing that Mike Rowe would talk about on his show, Dirty Jobs. Being able to communicate effectively in the written word, yes, but also in the spoken word is never going to go out of style. It hasn't gone out of style yet. And it's not going to go out of style, even as technology takes over. Mm-hmm. I understand text speak. I understand not capitalizing the first word of sentences and texts. But in the business place, that's still important. It's still important to have your subject and verb agree. So yeah, I would teach a course in basic composition, communication skills, both spoken and written for life, for jobs, not just writing a resume, but having a conversation with your boss, not being afraid to have a conversation. I see so many times kids are afraid to talk to teachers. They'd rather email. I would have a course in the importance of interpersonal communication, both written and verbal. Wonderful. All right. So if you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? I would encourage the younger me, and the younger me only did this for a little bit, but I would encourage him not to follow only titles, not to be drawn to the boss, but to realize that there are in any workplace, those who lead from influence and experience, passion and ability, not just position. And that in many cases, you can learn more from them than the boss either has time or inclination to help you with. I would encourage me, and I did this after a couple of years in jobs, but get adopted by a veteran peer. The reason you get adopted by a veteran peer is that you learn quickly they're not really a peer. Even if you have the same job title, they have more experience if they're a veteran. They've been around the block. They can tell you a little bit more. They can offer you some insights. And especially if they're a peer, they've not risen to the level of leadership where they have the organizational ability to be able to teach. These people want to share what they've learned. Everybody has an innate ability or an innate desire, I think, to share what they know. It's one of the things i banked on as a journalist. Everybody has a story they want to tell. I'm sure you see it all the time, Lily, when you talk to folks like me, they all have stories that they want to tell. That employee who may be your peer, but has seven to 10 years on you Mm -hmm. is going to be somebody who can share from the experience and help you avoid some of the pitfalls they didn't. I could have benefited from that in the first couple of years of my career. Mm -hmm. Lean on them, have them adopt you because that will not just further your career. Yeah, that's important, but it will further your knowledge. It will further your success. It will further the feeling of significance you have Mm -hmm. at the end of your working days. Now, how do you get adopted? In AA, they talk about this all the time. I mentioned before my time in AA when I was getting treated for alcoholism. One of the things that they have you do is it's like, okay, you have to have a sponsor. And they don't give you a course in getting a sponsor. It's like, go find a sponsor. So you look around and you see who seems to be doing sobriety right, who's got a few years under their belt, and you go talk to them. Same sort of thing applies in the workplace. Find people who are doing the same job as you, but have been doing it longer, and just ask them. Again, it's hard to do. We talked earlier about in schools, how kids want to email teachers, not talk to them. Walk up to a colleague, ask them to lunch, ask them to breakfast, ask them to dinner, Mm -hmm. ask them over to watch a movie at home, and in between pressing play, have a conversation. Ask them if they would be willing to help you learn more about how they've done the job, more about how they could do the job. I'm hard pressed to find cases where somebody wouldn't be willing to do that. I think there's an ache inside all of us, Lily. There's an ache to share our experience, to share what we know with those who are going to be replacing us at Mm -hmm. some point. 
when I was a younger football fan, there was a coach named Bill Walsh for the San Francisco 49ers, and he created what he called the West Coast offense. And then all of a sudden, coaches who worked for him started getting head coaching jobs all over the league because everybody wanted to have offense like that. He created a culture. He created disciples. It's happening again now. The coach of the Los Angeles Rams is one of these guys. Everybody who's ever had a cup of coffee with this coach now has a head coaching gig in the NFL. Those people are out there who want to create disciples, who see that happen in culture, who see people leaving a legacy. People work for a paycheck, yes. People work for impact, yes. I know why I work. I want to have a legacy. I think people want to have a legacy. And leadership allows you to build a legacy and you don't have to have a title to do it. So reach out to those folks who you respect, who you watch, who you see do a good job and ask them how you do this job. Can you give me some insights into how I could do my job better? Learn from that. It will be a leg up on more than just promotion, more money, more impact. It'll be a leg up on legacy for yourself. You'll be able to take that information that's been poured into you and go pour it into somebody else. And that's the beauty. The mm-hmm. greatest satisfaction I ever have as a leader is when a technique, an approach, something I've taught someone, I watch them do it. I see that they learned it. Hopefully they've taken it and they've adapted it to themselves. They're not doing it exactly like I did, but they're approaching the end goal in a different way, but they're still going for the same end goal. That is remarkably rewarding when you pass informational and experience along to someone and they act on it and you watch them succeed. It's what you talked about at the beginning, pouring into others. You know, it's so simple to just ask. I've counseled people, (laughs) I've mentored people, and I say, go find someone who can pour into you. And it's so difficult for them to do. And I think there's a fear, but I'm glad you spoke about that because I think that's so important to do. Here's what we need to do. You and I need to create an app that helps you find mentors. Right? Because everybody's so much more comfortable texting than talking. So let's create a mentor app where you can like text people and you can get mentor. Oh my gosh. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to publish this part. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. We don't want anybody to keep it on the down low. Yeah. We don't want anybody to steal our (laughs) idea. That's right. Don't steal our idea. It is so hard for people to have that conversation. So that goes back to lifelong learning. How do you reach this generation? How do you change the way that you do things? You meet them where they're comfortable. Let's try that. Let's try that. I wrote down app for mentoring. Okay, now you have a lot of responsibilities, Gary. What do you do on a daily basis to set your mind? My wife and I, every morning, read a Christian devotional. We sit down, have a conversation, and talk about ideas. That's really all this devotional is. It talks about ideas of how we treat each other, not just she and I, but how people treat each other. What's wisdom that you can grab and learn. There are calendars with affirmations of every day that you can look at. Those kinds of things can all be really good. Let's take a deep breath. Let's set our minds on something besides the to-do list on a higher purpose. And maybe throughout the day, those things that you've read, those things that you've talked about with your significant other or with a friend over coffee, the better angels of our nature will float into your mind in the midst of a boss yelling at you or in the midst of this assignment didn't meet with as much approval as you would have liked from your team. However that works out, set your mind on what you want to be, to set your mind on who you want to be just for five minutes or so. That's how we do it. And I'm amazed at the number of times the things that we talk about in the morning will show up during the day. Thank you for that. Now, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? You know, when I was a reporter, that was always the gotcha question. You'd always ask 
people, okay, is there anything else you want to say? And that's when people would mostly say the dumbest things in the interview. <laughs> <laughs> so no pressure, Gary. <laughs> so I always tell clients of mine when asked that, you know, no, if you haven't gotten to it, it wasn't organically important to get to it. So I don't think there's anything more that I would add beyond saying to you, bravo for what you're doing, for being someone who it's not hard for you to have ideas and you have not given up. You are plugging away, trying to help people become better leaders. And mm -hmm. that doesn't just mean, I can tell by the way that you talk about it, I can tell by listening to other podcasts you have, that doesn't mean just based on position and title. Uh, we all can lead from any place in an organization, from any place in a family, from any place in a school, no matter where we're at, we can all lead. We can all show somebody something right. that will help them get better at what they want to get better at. When you do that, at the end of the day, nothing is a better feeling. Yes. Nothing is a better feeling. This has been a great conversation. And I want to thank you, Gary, for adding value to me and to our listeners. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. As you can tell, I don't mind talking about myself. <laughs> <laughs> you do such a great job. <laughs> I've been doing it, I'm told, since I was like four or five. So, <laughs> Well done. Bravo. All right. Have a great day. All right. You too. Thank you so much. Hello, leaders. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.